1: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right
0: for you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend.
2: Good evening, children of the night. Good evening, and welcome to you. Yes, you hit the right bell. Yes, this is the Nook. I'm Lawrence Santoro. This is Tales to Terrify, and tonight, <laughs> Tonight, we will snuggle down and listen to the final two of six short stories that vie for the Bram Stoker Award in short fiction. Come in. Come, settle down, grab treats, cool beverages. Yes, it was in the 80s this week, twice. Yes, yes, yes. And grab a chum. Our authors tonight are John Palisano, a regular here during Stoker season, with his story, The Geminis. And David Gerald, a writer we most of us, anyway, probably associate with science fiction. But, he says, he's written two tales across his career that he considers horror. Tonight's Stoker-nominated Night Train to Paris is one of those two. But I am, as usual, getting ahead of myself. First of all, as you settle yourselves, I want to ask, how many of you have had a chance to visit the District of Wonder's newest neighborhood, that realm of epic mayhem and the jaw-dropping fantastic, hmm? Far-fetched fables it is called, and I hope you make it a weekly port of call. Fantasy and horror are more than just distant cousins, you know. So, if you enjoy coming here for treats and terrors— You might very well enjoy a foray into the realms of the near-impossible and the certainly impossible. FarfetchedFables.com takes you there. But don't forget to come back. We have our ways, you know. Okay. And one more reminder. Crystal Lake Publishing's Horror 101, The Way Forward is doing terrific business over on Amazon. Thank you very much. So terrific, in fact, that Crystal Lake's editor, publisher, Joe Mainhard, has said that he is considering taking this huge 99-cent how-to compendium on genre writing and turning it into an ink-on-paper volume you can put on a shelf and see it and hoist it and breathe it and love it. Well, you get the idea. The book allows some of the best in the field of horror, writing, editing, publishing, et all, to share their experiences and lifetimes' observations with you. It's a book for the seasoned professional as well as the beginning writer. I'll resist the temptation to list the names of the contributors to Horror 101 because, like drinking K.O. Pop, once you start, you just can't stop. And to go to the end would take up half the show. No. Well, yes, that's an exaggeration, but trust me, the names and the table of contents are impressive. I've got a segment in there, and I'm still finding myself rolling about in the sweet wisdom of the thing, and ninety-nine cents. How can you go wrong? All right. Are you settled, snuggled, treated, embeveraged? Good. Now... On and into the dark of tonight's fiction. John Palisano, author of The Gemini, says he was one of those guys who grew up on late night movies and the drive in theater experience. Hmm. So was I, but I think he's younger than I am. Hmm. After college, he moved to Los Angeles and took an internship with Ridley Scott. Nice taking if you can get it, which he describes as a phenomenal time in his life, as you would imagine. He worked on many big budget films and got to see how the films he grew up with came together. Being in that hot box, he says, he wrote lots of scripts, had an option or three, and produced a couple of low budget films. Something happened, though, he says. The movies often came out quite different than they appeared on the page. Eventually, he turned to writing fiction, and it was harder, he said, to place a pro-level fiction piece than it was to get financing for his first film. Well, he prevailed, and years later, he says, he finally saw the release of his novel, Nerves, from Bad Moon Books, and that was in the winter of 2012. Here is the... No. I'll let Bob Newfeld slate this one. He does it so well.
3: The Geminis by John Polisano I know love. It whispers in my ear at night in a dream she steals a kiss, her voice on my phone. I feel her against me, if only in my thoughts. Her arms and body wrap around me, her belly on mine. Her mouth hangs slightly open, her face twisted in pleasure, her lips move slightly askew. I have not felt this way in ages, thought my heart cold and cynical and Forever gone. Why is it the unexpected ones? When I see her, I feel light. When I leave, I am hollow, and my heart feels drawn back. My blood curves inside, going left, then right, like the snake shaped roads leading to her house. This is good enough. To know I can feel again, to know my heart can stretch to know I've finally healed. It's plentitude. But, wow, did it take time. Of course, I'm deeply involved with another, as is she. And so what? A gentle word, a small touch, gives me enough. Our love will not be ruined through familiarity. Our love remains true and unbroken. Love has awoke. Life Will follow. I know her, and she knows me. She has luscious, dark, and wavy hair, a soft face, similar to mine. We were even born close together her on the thirteenth of June, and I the day after, same year, hours apart, both in New York City, although we've met decades later in San Diego. Leah was drawn west, like me the call, the bug, the creative pull. Neither of us have seen our original youthful dreams through, but we've managed more appropriate dreams. Her a designer, my filmmaking, now our music. Such cascades of sound, rhythm, bass, counterpoint, such beautiful melodies. Our voices blend, her piano, my electric guitar. It drives away the darkness. In this sunshine, in the shadows under the greens, hate-filled things linger. They burrow inside your mind, they push you toward the edge, and then shove you over. Take you, take yourself. That's what they say inside my head. They're trying to draw me into their abyss, but I won't go quietly.' What is it that causes love? The years of attraction we program into our thoughts, the way someone looks, the beauty of another human being. Are we attracted to those who are not like our parents, those unlike those our parents like? Leah looked up at me from behind her keyboard. That's a neat riff, she said. Very catchy. I think we're on to something. Sure, I said it was all I could muster. The jam had felt good. My entire life I've been searching for someone who clicked perfectly with me. So many false starts in all those bands, and all those partners trying to make films. Nothing was ever a hundred percent. It was always compromised. That's the big problem I've always had. Nothing was easy. The collaborations were forced, most out of necessity, there weren't a lot of options. That, and I didn't always believe in myself, or have the confidence to step up and take charge, nor did I have the heart to tell people when they, or I, weren't working. The one time I asked a singer to leave a band, as he never hit the right notes, well, that turned into a disaster. The other members rebelled against me, and I found myself out of the band I'd started. They carried on gallantly, but never found much success. I ventured into obscurity. This does not make me bitter, not any more. Finding Leah has made me realize it was all for a reason, and a bigger plan was laid out in front of me, one I could never imagine or predict. My white Stratocaster caught some gleaming sunlight. It was a new instrument, which I found necessary. I'd needed to separate from my past in order to start something new, without the baggage I'd gathered on my older guitars. You think we should check the recording? I said. She nodded. Yes, great idea. I don't want to forget what we just did, she winked. Shut your eyes and remember, though just in case it didn't take. I did. The high B echoed throughout her living room, plucked by me on the A-string. Simple, and the repeating pattern soon caught on. Leah joined in, adding a diminished chord from her keyboard. She filled it with a droning bass pattern with her left hand. Expression, channeling, connecting. My memory of the jam blended with the recording which she played through her phone and her keyboard's external speakers. She was my other half. Not a perfect mirror, mind you, but the other side of me. Where I flew, she came. If her improvisational choices went too far, I caught her. If mine were too safe, she urged me outside my comfort zone. We did this without talking, without looking and only through the spirituality inside our playing. Harmony. Synchronicity. The sound and movement of love and spirit flowing. And were we only doing it for ourselves? No. We didn't know so. Not until later. Sexuality is the curve of a body. The feel. The body has limits. We all look similar. How many variations— Hairstyles, grooming, body types. Orgasms are centered in thoughts. So why is it only expressed physically? Can people love without touch? Does it always need to be primal? There's little of that left inside me. I cannot express myself solely through sexuality. Bonding through music feels more intimate, more inside. Sex is only on the outside.' The top of Arrowhead Road blossomed out into several smaller mountain streets. The houses got bigger, the gates became taller, the roads more rarefied. My daily walk with Charlie, her pit, always brought me great inspiration. We were high up off the valley basin. The air was cool and fresh even in the summer heat waves. There was a lot less traffic and a lot less people, which I preferred. I liked the relative solitude it brought. Charlie enjoyed the sense. I saw a pattern. In the side of the mountain there seemed to be a dark edge running from the bottom of the crest near to the top. This jagged line was nearly a foot wide at its fullest, but often shrunk down to only a few inches. It ran behind the houses and picked up on the unbuilt spaces between. At first I believed it was only a natural sediment layer, naked and revealed. On top of Arrowhead, despite the houses, most of the nature was untouched. There weren't gardeners pruning and planting the area into joyless sameness. No, you could still see nature the way nature grew. No imported grass, no extra plants, no palm trees, just raw earth. On my third day of recognizing the pattern— I decided I'd go up for a better look. Why not? Maybe I'd see some kind of fossil. I was kidding myself in that regard, but my curiosity bested me. Come on, Charlie, I said, as we veered off the edge of the road and made our way between two sand-coloured houses. There was a particularly good and thick section. The closer we got, the more detail I made out. Small granules glistened. They appeared organic to the layer. When we made it only a few feet from the strip, it moved, expanding horizontally, top and bottom, by a foot. For a moment I believed it had been some kind of optical illusion or trick of sunlight moving across it. The strip expanded again, and it moved outward toward me. "'You see this?' I said to Charlie, but he was looking elsewhere and not interested in the slightest. Small rocks and sandy soot fell. The strip widened. There was a low rumble, and I swear I heard voices. I shoved back. More sandy soot and rocks poured down. Come on, I said to Charlie. It had to be an earthquake. I'd had terrible timing. Scanning the street, I didn't see anywhere perfect to go. If the houses came down, me and Charlie would be right in the crossfire. There were other hazards on the street. The ground shook. Charlie whimpered. Strangely, everything appeared blurry to me. That must have been my adrenaline. We made it to the middle of the street. As I ran, I heard a horn. A white van slammed its brakes. I pulled Charlie back as fast as I could. Both of us looked toward the van. The driver, a stout Latin man, said, What's wrong with you? Quake, I said, and realized it had stopped. He regarded me for a moment, shook his head a little, and drove on up Arrowhead. That could have been bad, I said to Charlie. As we walked away, I looked back at the strip. It had widened considerably. In one place, I swear I saw an obsidian eye. Sleep came easy my trusted eye-pillow cushioned by eyelids, a gift from Leah. Colors swirled like a million galaxies in my dreams. Dread filled my gut. The worries of my waking life seeped through. Money was always an issue, as was my heart. Both were always on the verge of collapse. This was entirely due to a genetic predilection against normal work and normal people. Why dedicate over forty hours a week to tasks I could do in a few hours, only for money? Commerce. Why spend time with someone you don't love? These philosophies led me to near ruin. Instead of settling for a decent job and a comfortable wife with her own cozy job, I wanted more, explore the outer reaches, bask in creation, live for the unraveling. But this unmade me. Had it not been for Lee's generosity, I'd be in serious trouble. As it were, the worst was feeling guilty. That dream, though, unleashed something else, a deep fatalistic melancholy that infused my heart. I felt guilty for being alive. Humanity held promise, but ultimately failed. Why did I choose to be born as a man? Choose! There weren't voices in my head, per se, but thoughts delivered. These weren't of my own imagination. I felt them arrive as clearly as someone knocking on the door. They were coming from somewhere. The colors turned darker and darker, until it was an enormous, spanning black mass of organic matter. I traveled around it, its vastness and freezing temperature slowly overtaking me. This was my destiny, purpose, chosen way, and I remembered the eye looking out at me from the obsidian strip between the houses, hundreds of small yellow orbs floating through the air. Where they go, they bring death to every living thing. Nothing escapes. I saw them pour from the slit in the mountain. I woke with tears dried to my face." Leah opened the glass bay doors. Outside, the canyon stretched for miles in every direction. It looked like a sea of green. There were a few houses below, but the steepness and sandstone made developing most of the canyon too treacherous to develop. I want to hear our music sing to nature, she said. We'd already positioned our amps and speakers, so they faced outside. This, I knew, would be good. I plunked in my Stratocaster and set the dials on my amp. It didn't take me long to find my sweet spot. Leah tuned up her keyboard. She found the patches she liked and started playing. I followed along, this time in A minor. The notes cascaded through her vast living room. I pictured them as colors ringing off the walls and flowing slowly outside. I felt transformed into an otherworldly conduit. There's something surely magical about making music. It's the closest thing you can get to finding God on earth. That's what I've always believed. No other art forms I've practiced have gotten that close. Perhaps writing, when in the zone. Music forces the listener to be in the moment. It's very difficult not to be. It's hard to say how long the song went on. I didn't slight to the rhythm. My fingers didn't feel like they were my own, but guided by other hands. Nothing else mattered. I felt electric, pure. Our spirits melded together. It was as if we had joined somehow in the ether. The music echoed outside of the house, and we could hear it flowing into the canyon. This was a new audience for us. Even if there were no people— there were other things listening to what we were creating. Something made me look out across the canyon to the top of the other hill. Something primal inside. About three-quarters of the way to the top of the adjacent hill, I swear I saw trees and vegetation moving. It was as if the mountain were about to split. What was I seeing? Was this another earthquake? Wind? my instinct told me it was something else. I shut my eyes and played. Other than my hands, I barely moved. I felt hypnotized. Don't stop. Almost there. Feels so right. When I first became friends with Leah, I felt a pull inside I thought I'd never feel again. I thought I was too old to fall madly in love we didn't even have to say much to one another. There was a magical connection. I'd drive away down the curving mountain roads and could barely hold my breath. My head spun, hands shook. I could barely focus on the road. I played love songs on the iPod through the stereo. It hurt, I hurt, in that most magnificent and wonderful way. Back home I had to go through the motions— I wasn't in love with Teresa. I cared for her, deeply. I loved her. But I wasn't in love. Not like I was with Leah. Many counseled me. Mature love doesn't have to come on strong, they'd say. It's better if it doesn't. It'll be stronger. I didn't believe them, despite my nods, despite my thanks. No.' Especially not after my feelings for Leah erupted. Love is more important than it may seem. Love kept me going back. Love guided me to Leah. Love drove the music. The music drove away the darkness. Our thoughts meet our soul's embrace, and our inside worlds run free, creating shades and colors and sounds. Our bodies on autopilot, transcribing what they can through their hands and bodies. Does it make it through and sound true? Who can know for sure? Blue is everywhere, like a tinted glass. Then orange, then purple, then everything sounds like a million voices. I can't play it safe anymore, not if I think I can really get off. I need things to be new, different, taboo situations. My brain has to be charged, on fire. Sex is so damn mental. You just know what people are doing. The same old rhythms, tricks, positions, bathroom mouth, not clever or sexy. It's often ruined with National Geographic like close ups of anatomy. Why? It's all inside the eyes, kissing, the sexiest part, the touching feeling someone close to you. It's not all about the genitals. These are only one means of expression of love, and it's been reduced to something about as attractive as going to the bathroom. It's not sexy seeing girls being abused or their faces used as targets. It's gross, sickening. Who wants to see that? Romance is a dying art. Pornography is killing it, Broad daylight, aerobics with body fluids. No fun, not romantic, not special. Let's not even cross that line. Let's just let it melt away until there is only spirit. Let the sounds free us from our bodies, let the husks fade to dust. Only the humming of our souls, like a drum hit that doesn't decay or fade, but stays on for several minutes. That's when the soul hums. That is how it sounds. They spoke to me. Their voices, like discordant bursts, through the music. I looked down at the amp, convinced something had gone wrong. Leah didn't notice. She was still in a trance, her chin up, eyes closed, dark hair cascading. What was it, then? Klot sumidao, klot somedae. The exotic, unfamiliar words came through, bundled in static and volume. Who spoke them? What did they mean? Why me? A vision, then. The mountain-top opens. Obsidian links find purchase. Their lengths, lined with orifice, tasting the air. Protective layers peel away. Small, round things are freed. They'd been cradled within the limbs. Babies? They roll, then crawl, then roll, like smooth black baseballs. Rows of small thorns circle their diameters. They give off a sweet smell that I instinctively know is poisonous. They roll toward the houses. I see people, everyone, in fact, on the ground, everyone paralyzed by the scent, still alive, still conscious, still feeling when the orbs unfold and their thorns grow outward. Hungry for the kill. No one can scream when the orbs rip into them, blood, tissue, shredding, slowly, painfully. Above, a shadowed thing blocks the sun. The dying see glimpses. Kat Somi Dow, Day. The city will pay. This city will pay. These people will pay. And this will only be the beginning. That was wonderful, Leah said. We keep getting better and better. I wish I knew you back in New York when I was just starting out. We both would have probably been much further along. It just feels like I've known you forever. We just click. Where have you been all my life? I don't know, I said, wasting my time with other people. I turned the volume down on my guitar, so we didn't have to hear the sixty-cycle hum. Leah nodded. I know what you mean. How long do you think we were playing? I shook my head. Ten minutes, I said. Try close to half an hour, Leah said. I can't believe we lasted that long. Wow, me neither. That's crazy. She said, want to go again? And smirked. How can I say no? How about we do D minor this time? she said. Sounds good to me. Just make sure that recorder is going. Leah pressed a button. Rolling, she said. Words. Devastating. Cruel. It's what drove me forward. The other one insisted on devolving into abuse. When we first met, she loved me. Her eyes lit. Her face lit. But like so many relationships, things went south. Her sloth became overbearing, her tongue grew critical and sharp. She found faults where once she found redemption. I became litmus for her to get back at all the men who'd done her wrong. She became so cold, she literally turned her back on me when my kidney disease flared. Instead of loving me, she picked a fight, accusing me of terrible things. I was the stand-in for her to say and act toward those who'd hurt her, unfair as it seems. This is so you know what I realized. A larger current pushed me. I may never have become close to Leah otherwise. I'd never have asked her to play music. I needed escape. We needed to come together. Only pure connection, pure spiritual love, would have been enough. Faking it wouldn't work. It had to be authentic, beyond any doubt. The thing inside the mountain would know. The house shook. My head felt suddenly filled with small holes, like a piece of coral. Inside these gaps I felt fluid swoosh in and out. It didn't hurt, although it was extremely unpleasant. Leah looked uncomfortable, more so than me— she stood from her keyboard and made it to her couch. The house shook again. It threw me off. "'Quake!' I said. Leah didn't notice. She was stretched out across her white sectional, an elbow over her eye. I ran to her with my guitar. "'What's going on?' I said. "'Leah?' The guitar came off. I rested it against the couch. Her eyes didn't look right.' There was an odd, smoky smell that overtook the house. The air seemed cloudy. My throat went dry. Something's going on, I said. I think there's a fire. Leah barely registered what I'd said through her tears. Then she looked to me. It's horrible, she said. The thing in the mountain. My mind raced. I saw it just now, she said, in my thoughts. Very dark. "'Eyes everywhere, mouths. "'As she saw, I saw. "'Pictures formed in my mind. "'She, my other half, trembled. "'It has long legs with holes in them, "'lots of little holes. "'They all move, too, "'and it's inside at the top of the mountain. "'It wants to kill us all. "'It's just waiting. "'Extinction, the little black orbs it releases.' They give off some kind of smoke. We both looked up. Several orbs were on the ceiling. That was where the strange smell came from. Ringing sounds and indistinct words. Clot somi dow, clot somi day. I heard not through my ears, but somehow through vibrations in my bones, unlike anything I'd ever sensed. Cacophony, noise, disjointed not rhythmic at all. The orbs tore into the ceiling, causing cracks. Their sounds became worse. Leah screamed. That, too, made their noises worse. I know what we have to do. There's only one way we can get out of this. I'm not sure what made me think of it. I knew she wasn't able to walk to the booth, and I didn't have the strength to carry her. Somehow my instinct took over— I hurried to the keyboard, found the box, and pressed the red triangle on top. Our music filled the room. It blended with the noises coming from the orbs. We realized it all fit together. Feels like static electricity inside, curling around like waves. Currents carry us, intermix us. Our energies move in and out of one another like two cloudy mists. Only they're not mists, but countless atoms circling. It didn't make sense at first, but their terrifying notes and sounds blended perfectly and systematically with the music we had been creating. We'd channeled them without realizing it. All those memories and experiences turned off, gone. The world inside fades to nothing. It can't all be from nothing. How can we have this consciousness evolved from nothing? There is meaning, there is reason. There must be a place where all this ends up. Tears streamed down Leah's face. She gave a slow nod. At that moment my heart broke into a million pieces. I don't know how it had come to this. I loved her so much—' But there was very little I knew I'd be willing to do to express that many times I thought through a possible relationship with her. I had scanned all the milestones, first dates, first kiss, love-making, the proposal settling into a routine, then twins, a boy and a girl, their hair a mixture of ours, my blonde and her dark hair mixing together. I saw the happy faces I almost needed their names. But then I looked down at her, and wasn't sure it would ever happen. She'd know me from this now, from these things. And our music was magic. What our love made together was some sort of shield against the thing inside the mountain. I knew it in my heart. We needed the passion. We needed our truest feelings. Yet passion and feelings fade over time, even with lovers who are crazy about each other. We couldn't risk that happening. I see these things, she said. There's another across from us, too. Maybe more, she gestured out the bay doors. She was right. The top of the mountain moved. There was another thing living inside. We must have woken them. Stark limbs pushed through dirt and rock, setting aside trees and vegetation. They won't stop with us, Leah said. The orbs on the ceiling rolled toward the door. Within moments they left. Their part of the music faded. We waited, our eyes trained on the hill across from us. When the recording stopped, it appeared that the things in the mountain faded back within their hiding place. No trace of the orbs. A faint smell lingered. I found the courage to sit on the couch next to Leah. I put out my hand— and she held it. Where would we go from here? What now? she said. What are we supposed to do? Stay in this room forever? Are we supposed to play new music forever, or do we play the recording over and over and over again? I think we'll have to follow our instincts. How are we going to know when they come back? How are we supposed to live our lives now? Are we supposed to wait here? Yes, I think one of us is always going to have to be here, waiting, just in case. If we're not here when they come calling, that could be bad. My throat hurt, my head ached, I wanted to sleep, to forget all I knew and saw, to forget what had happened. What if we are hallucinating? she said. What if none of this is real? I've been thinking the same thing, second-guessing myself. This can't be real. Things in the mountain, black orbs in the neighborhoods, killing people. Doesn't make any sense. I was hoping for so much more, she said. I knew there was something special when I met you. But I thought it was something else. I thought they were something personal. This is personal, I said. You're the left hand, and I'm the right. We need each other to be whole. We need each other to make the music, treble clef and bass clef. We're each playing half the melody. You play a phrase, and I play a phrase. That's it, then. We found our destiny, each other. And those things, those things in the mountain, they'll be listening. Forever. Forever. She patted her abdomen where a small bump rose. Twins, she said. Ours.
2: Thank you for letting us hear that, John. A word or two more. The Geminis first appeared in Chiral Mad 2, and that was in December of 2013. Oh, and by the way, John Palisano is one of the authors who has a segment in Horror 101, The Way Forward. Shut up, Lawrence. Shut up. The Geminis was read for us tonight by Mr. Robert Newfeld. It was Bob Newfeld who recently entertained us for five-plus hours with his incredible rendition of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Since he turned up, Bob has been our kind of go-to guy for Lovecraft, William Hope Hodgson, M.R. James, and all of Robert Payne Cabine's grim holiday poetic delights. To my tastes, Mr. Newfeld is one of the premier readers on LibriVox, which is where I first encountered him. I always jump at a chance to have a listen to whatever he does over there. You can hear more from him there and over on the Crime City Central neighborhood in the District of Wonders. Moving ahead to our last Bram Stoker Short Fiction nominee for the season... We have a horror tale by Mr. David Gerald.
1: David Gerald is the author.: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about juvederm lip fillers. For full important safety
0: information, visit juviderm.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: Author of over 50 books, several hundred articles and columns, and over a dozen television episodes, His television credits include episodes of Star Trek. Yes, he is the Trouble with Tribbles guy. He also wrote The Cloudminders. He scripted several episodes of the Star Trek animated series, including More Tribbles, More Troubles, and Bem, as well as did work on Babylon 5, Believers, Twilight Zone, A Day in Beaumont, A Saucer of Loneliness. On Land of the Lost, he did Chaka and The Sleestack God, Hurricane, Possession, Circle. On Tales from the Dark Side, he did Levitation and If the Shoe Fits. He also worked on the Logan's Run series, doing Man Out of Time, and others. His novels include When Harley Was One, The Man Who Folded Himself, The War Against the Chtor, Septology, The Star-Wolf Trilogy, the Ding Iliad Young Adult Trilogy, the Tracker's Duology, and more. The autobiographical tale of his son's adoption, The Martian Child, won both the Hugo and Nebula Awards for Best Novelette of the Year and was the basis for the 2007 movie Martian Child, starring John Cusack, Amanda Peet, and Joan Cusack. Here is David Gerald's. Night Train to Paris.
4: How I ended up in Milan takes some explanation. I had been invited to speak to a science fiction media convention in Bellaria, a small resort town halfway up the eastern side of the Italian boot. I assumed the audience enjoyed what I had to say, but afterward the English translation of the web review said that I totally fell, and that I was less brilliant. I decided not to let it bother me. It was probably true, and I've been called worse in English. I wandered around Italy for a bit, finally winding up in Venice, a clustered jumble of narrow passages, shops, canals, bridges, piazzas, and little shops, filled with gaudy glassware glittering masks, plus pastries and pizza everywhere. The whole thing is a puzzle box, a gaudy architectural confection too preposterous to be real, crowded with herds of gray-haired tourists, of which I was now one, and people taking pictures of each other. After three days I was ready to move on. I planned to spend a few days in Paris, then London, where I had some business waiting for me. The usual way from Italy to Paris is through Geneva, but I'd done that trip. I wanted to see some different countryside. Looking at a map I assumed I could catch a train from Milan to the south of France, famous among Impressionist painters for its wonderful light, so I booked a morning reservation and arrived in Milan shortly after noon. That's when the adventure began. Trinitalia didn't have any trains to the south of France, not from Milan. They did have one to Geneva, where I could catch a train to Paris, but it had already pulled out. The only train to France was a night train to Paris, leaving at 2338. But they wouldn't honor my rail pass ninety-six euros, please. I dithered with the lady at the customer service desk for a bit, trying to find an alternate way out of Italy, but there wasn't one. My options were simple—stay in Milan for a night so I could catch the next day's train to Geneva, then then Paris, and lose another whole day in travel, or spend the ninety-six euros and take the night train to Paris. Thinking about it, the cost of the train would be almost the same as a hotel room, maybe a little bit more, and I'd be in Paris at nine-oh-nine the next morning. Of course, it also meant an eight-hour layover until the train boarded. I thought a short walk through the neighborhoods surrounding the train station might use up some time, but I found little to hold my interest. I did find a McDonald's with free Wi-Fi, but I have never had much interest in pictures of cats with badly spelled captions. Back at the terminal I still had six hours to wait. I found a place to sit at the end of a long row of chairs and curled up with the first book. Of a popular seven-book trilogy, of which only the first five have been published. Starting an unfinished series with an act of faith on my part, an assumption that some day there would be a conclusion. The television adaptation had caught my interest enough that I had grown particularly impatient to see a certain little weasel receive a well-deserved and extremely painful death. The rhythm of the tale demanded it. I confess to not read many works of pseudo-medieval fantasy, My mind starts wandering into questions of physicality. Nobody wakes up in the morning after a battle aching and bruised, in too much pain to move. Nobody's wounds get infected. Despite the absence of hot baths, everybody is leaping eagerly in a bed with everybody else, and nobody ever catches any sexually transmitted disease. You never hear about the fleas or the lice either, or the pox. Shortly I discovered why you cannot read for long in a train station, especially not a European train station. The ever changing multitudes passing through are a magnet for pickpockets and beggars. My best defense against a pickpocket is to wear an angry scowl and a photographer's vest with a multitude of zippered compartments. So far that's worked, but there's no equally effective defense against panhandlers. In my imagination the Milanese beggars have organized themselves into some kind of mendicants' guild, all working the same route through the train station, spacing themselves at five minute intervals. First the stoop-shouldered old woman in a shawl, a few minutes later a tall black man with a thick unrecognizable accent, and after him a frantic-looking woman of disheveled appearance, a little later the scraggly old man without any teeth who reeks offensively of alcohol and urine, and then, of course, a young woman with an adorable but forlorn toddler in hand, and finally the aggressive fat woman who confronts with such a demanding demeanour the only possible response is rudeness. She strides away as if you're the one in the wrong. One at a time, they start at the south end of the row of chairs and work their way up. Reaching the last seat north, they move into the main part of the terminal and continue a circuitous route through the arriving and departing passengers, eventually coming back around full circle to the south end of the line of chairs again. If you're only waiting for a short time, you don't see the pattern. If you're sitting for more than an hour, you start to recognize the players in this game. I began to feel like a character trapped in a Charles Dickens novel. Perhaps I could have one of those wonderfully unforgettable names, Fletcher Pennysworth or Carfax Abbey, something like that. But here in the Milan train station, any sustained mental exercise, working on the laptop, reading, or just listening to music, slowly goes from uncomfortable to impossible. The interruptions come one after the other. It's not just Milan, of course. All of the major train stations in Europe have the same entourage of scroungers, vagabonds, and opportunists. They've been here since before Caesar, They'll probably be here, accosting travelers when we're all beaming from place to place via public transportation portals. The passengers will arrive and depart, the beggars will stay, the only permanent residents of the terminal. At last, with little time to spare before departure, the giant display board announced that the night train to Paris would be leaving from bin 14. I presume the same scene happens every night. Seemingly from nowhere a crowd coalesces into a surge, Everyone hurrying down the platform with worried expressions and too much luggage, myself included. I followed the flow, quickly getting caught up in it, one more pebble in a horizontal avalanche. My ticket assigned me to carriage eighty-nine, almost all the way up to the front of the train. It was a long walk, and my legs had already begun to remind me, with appropriate twinges and pains, that I am no longer a young man. Out of breath, and aching from the effort, I arrived at the carriage, shoved my suitcase up the steps, and pulled myself in after it. My compartment was towards the front of the car, more distance to push my luggage. I had not been buying souvenirs, but my suitcase was getting heavier anyway, all across Europe. I blame the suitcase, not my age. At last I pushed my personal entourage into the narrow cabin and sank gratefully into the broad seat that I expected to be my bed for the night. Just sitting quietly by myself, no noise, no beggars, nothing else to do, I could let myself relax. Next stop, Paris. Departure in fifteen minutes. I pulled out my camera and snapped a few photos from the train window. A worker was walking along the track, stabbing trash with a pointed stick and putting it into a plastic bag. I snapped his photo. People going about the daily business of life are fascinating to me. Their faces, their postures, whole stories are written in their body language. Yes, I take pictures of scenery, too, but I also take pictures of the little details, the nuts and bolts of the world, window-boxes, doorways, vaulted ceilings, balconies, terraces, all kinds of architectural trim. There is a genuine artistry in the ordinary. All those little things we miss because we never stop to look. To my eye, a woman looking out a window at the traffic below, caught in the afternoon sunlight, can have the same sudden beauty as a Vermeer painting of a girl with a pearl earring. With some time before departure and nothing else to photograph, I began reviewing the photos. I'd been experimenting with auto HDR and a third stop overexposure to bring out the details in dark spaces. For the most part the experiment had worked. The details in the dark areas were visible now. The lighter areas seemed suffused with light. I stumbled into it by forgetting that my glasses darkened automatically in the sunlight, so I had tweaked the exposure, but the experiment was successful. The effect reminded me of the French Impressionists, especially Monet's delicate perspectives. I clicked through slowly, quite pleased with myself. Some of my photos looked good enough for publications. At least to me they did. My solitude was short-lived. The cabin door slammed open, and a stout husky man in workman's clothes pushed in, shoving a worn-looking duffel before him. He smelled of tobacco and alcohol and sweat, three of my least favorite smells. Buongiorno, he boomed it in thick Italian journal, bon I echoed half-heartedly. Ah, English, he said. You were English? No, sorry. Canadian? American. Ah, America. I love American food. Hamburger, cheeseburger, barbecue, see. You are enjoying Italy, I hope. It is very beautiful, I said politely. Molto bella. I picked up a few words and phrases, enough to say please and thank you appropriately. The man busied himself with his luggage for a bit, pushing and shoving it into an overhead space. Meanwhile the train lurched into action. It grumbled its way through the train-yard, out of the station, and into the larger brightness of the night. The shadowed lights of Milan rolled past in orange gloom. Finally satisfied that he had stowed his luggage safely, the man settled himself opposite me, clearly ready for a conversation. "'So, where in America is your home?' "'Los Angeles,' I admitted. "'Ah, Los Angeles, Hollywood. Where the movie stars live. You are a movie star?' I had to smile at that. I shook my head. Fame is not something I aspire to. Aside from a few lines of dialogue in an Internet episode, I have avoided the dangerous side of the camera.' "'But you know the movie stars, yes?' I shook my head again. Aside from one magic moment in Hollywood, where Federico Fellini and Sophia Loren had stood beside me in the warm evening while we waited for our respective limousines, my contact with the industry has been minimal, but I did enjoy watching her breathe. Occasionally the gods give us little blessings to remind us that life can be amazing.' but I didn't mention the episode. Some pleasures are best kept private. I was hoping he would take the hint that I had little interest in conversation this late at night. He didn't take the hint. He thrust his hand out enthusiastically. Claudio, he said. I'm Claudio. You are? I introduced myself, already resigned to the casual interrogation of a stranger in search of some common ground and the empty chatter that would inevitably follow. He pointed to my camera. You are a photographer? A professional? I shook my head. I'd sold a few photos here and there, but I hadn't pursued it as an income source. Maybe some day I'd feel that my photos were worth publishing, but right now I felt certain that the National Geographic already had enough pictures of the Rialto Bridge in Venice, even at twenty-four megapixels. But you take pictures, yes? Yes. Maybe you will catch a picture of the—how do you say it?—great mystery of the train here. The word mystery has always caught my attention. Ever since I was nine, when I'd found a copy of Edgar Allan Poe's Tales of Mystery and Imagination on my father's bookshelf, Roderick Usher still lurked beneath my nightmares, a tall gaunt figure backlit by horror. But despite my relentless curiosity, I've learned to be increasingly skeptical. Most mysteries are wishful thinking. Nevertheless, I had to ask. This train has a mystery. See, si, see, si, he said enthusiastically. A very great mystery. Un grande misterioso. He glanced around conspiratorially. He got up and opened the cabin door, looked out both ways, closed it, came back, and sat down again. They do not talk about it much in the public. They know what is happening, but they do not know why, so they say nothing. They pretend. Who doesn't say anything?" Claudio waved his hands to indicate everything beyond the compartment in which we sat. The train is speeding up now. All of them. The people who know. "'Uh-huh,' I said. "'But you know about this great mystery, because—' "'Because I am Claudio, and I know this thing. "'I ride this train many times. "'The controllori they know me. "'They trust me enough to talk to me,' he leaned forward and whispered. "'Because they are scared.' "'Okay,' he had me. "'I leaned forward in my seat, ready to listen. "'Why are they scared?' "'Before he could answer, the cabin door slid open, and a female conductor asked, "Passaporti?" I handed mine over. Claudio dug around for his, one pocket after the other, finally found it, passed it across. The conductor said, "Grazie." closed the door and disappeared. I turned back to Claudio. "'Okay,' I said. "'Tell me now. Why are they scared?' Something had changed his mood. He looked anxious. "'Signore, I should not. Now that's not fair. First you bring it up, then you say you can't talk about it.' "'Sometimes I talk too much.' He gestured with both hands as if wiping the conversational slate clean. Please, we talk about something else instead. I don't think so. I want to know about the great mystery. Claudio shook his head. He was adamant. Someone else will have to tell you. Okay, fine, I said. The train rocked unevenly. It was getting late. I stood up and began fussing with the back of the seat, trying to lower it and turn it into a bed. Don't tell me. Keep your secret. I'm going to sleep now. I had already made up my mind to see what Google could tell me tomorrow. "'I don't think you should sleep on the train,' Claudio said. "'It is not a good idea.' "'It's not? Not in this train, I think. And this is because?' He didn't answer. "'Because of the great mystery you're not going to tell me about.' "'See, see,' he said it with enormous resignation. "'Okay, so I can't sleep and you won't tell me why. Thank you very much. Grazie.' I went back to fussing with the latches that held the seat back in place. Claudio made a noise of frustration, then got up to help me, but instead of helping me lower the seat he pushed it back up into place. "'Sit, please,' he said. I sat. what I tell you? You promise you will tell no one else?' "'I promise,' I said, not meaning it at all. He looked at me skeptically. I was probably not the first person to lie to him, and he was not the first person I had lied to. He sighed, an audible recognition that no promise is ever really a guarantee. He turned to his luggage, digging into it like a badger, and pulled out half a bottle of red wine. He unscrewed the top, drank from the bottle, then passed it across to me. What the hell! I took a swallow. It wasn't great wine, but it wasn't bad, either. I don't know enough about wine to tell. I just know if it tastes okay. Claudio took another swig, wiped his mouth, sat back, and prepared to unburden himself. He offered me the bottle again. I waved it off, and he began. The outside world was long gone. All that remained was this island of dim light caught in the middle of a racketing, lurching sea of noise and movement. "'It's all about the missing people,' he said. Many missing people now, but not at the beginning, first only one or two. This train—it used to be full every night. Many people—tourists, businessmen, families, students, sometimes fifteen hundred, two thousand people—every cabin full. Not so any more this cabin, this is a cabin for four. Where are the other two? They do not come. Not this way. They go to Genève instead. Or they take the coach and get on a train to Marseilles, or somewhere. Why? They are scared. They hear the stories. Nobody believes the stories, but there is still reason to fear. He spread his hands wide. They stay away. You're riding the train, I pointed out. Do you believe the stories? I believe there is something, he shook his head. I tell you this, Signora. People disappear from this train. That part is not a story. He took another swig from the bottle, looked at it, sloshed the remainder around, screwed the metal cap back on. He leaned forward. It started. I don't know how long ago, but one morning the train arrives in Paris. One passenger is not aboard. Nobody knows where he gets off. He is just gone. Poof. The Polizia investigate. There is nothing. There is no body. There is no evidence. There is nothing. Two thousand people get out of Milan nineteen hundred and ninety-nine get off in Paris. That's it? See, that's it. So after a while, they assume maybe there was a booking error, or maybe the person gets off in the middle of the night somewhere. After a while, nobody cares. It's just a missing person. Then a few days later, maybe a week, another person. Poof! Only one. This time a young lady student. A coincidence, perhaps. Another investigation. Another question with no answer. A mystery. And then there's another. And another and another until it's once or twice a week the newspapers the television they report the missing people soon the night train gets a new name the train of mystery the train of disappearing people some people laugh about it some think perhaps a how do you say it a serial murderer maybe maybe something else who knows so many people still take the train if fifteen hundred people get on if a thousand people get on and only one disappears then the gamble is in your favor it is fifteen hundred thousand against one. You should be safe, see? But still, somebody is the one. The Polizia, they think it is a serial murderer. They look at everybody who travels the train. They have the numbers of the passporti. They can see who is on the train when the victims disappeared. And? Claudio smiled, grinned. A very unsavory expression. His teeth were yellow and uneven. I hadn't noticed that before. Do I look like a serial murderer? I don't know, I said. I don't know what a serial murderer looks like. He laughed. Okay, you are funny, but I am on list of people to investigate. So are many, many others. The polizia have much work to do, all the checking, but as much as they check, nobody is on the train all the times when somebody vanishes. Sometimes see, sometimes no, but nobody always see. Unless I stopped. Signore. I watch too much television. I wave the thought away. No, Signora, say what you're thinking. Por favor. Well, if it were a serial killer, as you say, he could be using different passports specifically to confuse the police. Ah, yes, of course. If it were a serial murderer, that would be a good way to hide. If it were a serial murderer. The train lurched and rocked. Darkness rushed past. We were a flickering moment of stillness. If it were. You don't think so? Claudio shrugged. I am not an expert on these things. Are you? No, I'm not. The way he sat, the serious expression on his face, there was much more to this than he hadn't told me yet. People are still disappearing. See, he said it almost with resignation. The Polizia, they want to cancel the train. The Trinitalia people, they would lose too much money. They want more Polizia aboard. But sometimes it is one of the Polizia who disappears. So now the Polizia want to catch the murderer even more. How many people now? One or two a week, every week, for—he paused to count at his head—many months now, six or seven months. And it's still going on? See, si, see, si. And people are still taking the train? See, si, yes. He nodded. Like yourself, Signore. Many do not know. Nobody tells them. They board the train. They get to Paris, they get off. They are happy and they're not knowing. Sometimes they don't get off, one or two times a week. Other people— "'They do know. They ride anyway. Some ride on a dare. It is a great sport for young people to ride the train and pretend to be brave. Whole groups of young men and young women,' he shrugged. "'Sometimes reporters, too. They think they are smart enough to discover the mystery of the train. They bring cameras and lights and microphones. They think they will catch the mysterious killer. And they disappear, too?' "'No, I don't think so. I think the mystery of the train is too smart,' I had to ask. "'And knowing all this, you continue to ride the train?' Many business people, not just me, we have our business. It is too important. Maybe, like me, they think they are safe. I think I am safe. If the train wanted to eat me, it would have eaten me by now, so it doesn't want me, and I am safe to ride. But sometimes, even the people who think they are safe, sometimes they don't get off the train either. Nobody is safe. But you still ride. I cannot afford to go the long way around, and Trenitalia still sends the train out every night. They cannot afford not to. It is their business. It makes them money. If they lose a rider now and then, so what? The rider has already paid for the ticket. He took his chance when he got on the train. But people keep buying tickets, so Tranitalia keeps selling them. Some people say Tranitalia is in league with the devil. Not me. I think they do not care. I think the tickets are more important to them than the caring. And none of this scares you?" He shook his head. He leaned forward conspiratorially. "'Do you want to know my secret, Signora?' I nodded. I was sure he was going to tell me anyway. "'I tell you my secret. I stay up all night talking.' He jabbed his finger in my direction. "'I find someone to talk with, someone like you who deserves to live. I stay up all night. I keep him up all night, too. We talk and talk all night long. We drink and we talk.' He waved the bottle at me, reminding himself to drink again. "'Sometimes it is funny, very funny. We laugh. Sometimes even we sing brave songs.' but we stay awake. The mystery of the train is that it is never more than one person at a time who vanishes. So if we're sitting and talking, it does not take either of us, because it cannot take both of us. Capisce?" See, I said, I understand. I understand that as tired as I am from a long day in the Milan train station, it's going to be an even longer night. I'm not going to get any sleep on this train. This man is going to keep me up until the first glow of daylight, because he's so scared. Or maybe he's not scared. Maybe this is an intricate Italian practical joke, and he's telling me this preposterous story as a way to entertain himself. "'It seems to me,' I said cautiously, "'that it would require an enormous amount of skill and preparation to make a person disappear. I don't know that much about murder, but I'm told it can be very messy and very violent, and afterward there's the problem of disposing of the evidence.' Claudio frowned in confusion. "'Getting rid of the body,' I explained. "'Ah,' he said, "See." Si. There are never any bodies, there is never anything. That is the great mystery. That is why some people, many people, say it must be an evil spirit, that the train is hunted. You mean haunted? No, signore. He shook his head as if I had insulted him. Il mio inglese, my English, it is not good, but it is not that bad either. I said hunted because I meant hunted. Some people believe that there is something out there in the night. He waved uneasily towards the empty, dark window. Something that chases the train for sport, like a cat chases a feather on a string. Sometimes it catches it for a moment, then it lets it go so it can chase it again. I didn't know what to say to that. I fell back on safe conversational filler. That's an interesting thought. Claudio nodded, his expression darkened, as if he were looking at something inside himself. Finally he whispered, I have seen it myself. He looked across at me, and his eyes were troubled. Signore, it is real. I have seen it. You have? In the morning you will think on this. In daylight you will decide I am, how do you say, Siocho, foolish, but I am not. You don't have to believe me, but I believe me, because I have seen it, and I know what I have seen. He pointed at my camera. If I had La a and Photographica, like you, I would have pictures. Then you would believe. I should have known better. I said, pictures can be faked. He shook his head. Point your camera out the window, with your own eyes, with your own Machina. Maybe you will see for yourself. It's too dark, I said. I won't get anything but blackness. He looked skeptical. You have a machina that big and expensive and it doesn't see in the dark? Cameras need light to work. La luz. No, that was Spanish. La luce. To prove the point, I set the camera for burst mode and popped off the lens cap. I set the exposure for auto and pointed it out the window. I ran off a string of shots one after another. The camera clattered. I unfolded the screen on the back, held the camera out for him to look. He peered closely. Nothing. "'See? Try again, Signore. Another rattled frames, a third, a fourth, black frames. Claudio sat back in his seat, convinced. "'You need a better camera. Two thousand dollars, and I need a better camera,' I didn't reply. For a while we just sat and looked at each other. The train clattered and rocked and bumped, more than I thought any train should, but Claudio did not look alarmed at the bouncing. Finally he said, "'But I know what I saw with my eyes.' He pointed toward the window there is something out there it hunts the train every night sometimes it catches something sometimes it does not i can't say what it is i don't know but i have seen it it is out there it is the control lorry know it too that is why they stay up all night huddled together in their own compartment i shrugged all right you believe me i see that you believe it if as you say people go missing they do he nodded sadly then yes there is reason to fear and as i said it i felt my own unease finally solidifying in my chest what had become someone else's anxious delusion had suddenly become my own concern as well the hollow queasiness of fear is a visceral acknowledgment of the moment and my own dilemma had suddenly crystallized either this man was telling the truth and i was riding a very dangerous train or this man was delusional and i was in a much more personal danger I wanted to get up, get out of the cabin, strolled up and down the narrow corridor of the car, anything to escape this moment. Maybe there was a service car with an all-night bar. But if I left this cabin, I would be alone. And if I went alone, plodding down the narrow corridors of all the cars, past all the darkened cabins, would I be putting myself in even greater danger? And if I tried to leave, then Claudio would be alone. Would he panic? Would he refuse to let me leave? Would he get violent just to keep me with him? Maybe if I pretended I wanted to take some more pictures, I could stand in the corridor outside the compartment and fiddle with the exposure and aperture and center speed, and occasionally rattle off a few frames. I could say I was trying to validate his story. I'd still be in his sight, but at a safe remove. I stood. I slid open the compartment door. I'll try some more pictures, I said. Keep the door open and watch. Signore, please. I'll be right here, I said. You can watch me. But you're not going to be able to watch me. It'll be all right, I'm sure. I stepped into the corridor. He stood up and held the compartment door open, waiting like a nervous nanny. I didn't like him standing so close behind me. I considered moving down the corridor away from him, but his anxiety was palpable. I didn't dare add to it. I allowed myself a half step leftward, just so I could have an unobstructed view out the window. The train clunkered on, and I braced myself against the inner wall of the passage. I fiddled with auto HDR and dynamic rain optimization. I pushed the exposure up. I forced the ISO all the way up to where it was nothing more than raw noise. I took streams of burst-mode exposures, followed by careful single shots, and then long exposures, too. There was no point in using the flash. The glass of the window would reflect black and dazzle. But I spun off another series of shots anyway. I didn't even bother looking. With the flash they'd come out glaring. Without the flash everything would be black. Or perhaps I'd pick up my own dim reflection in the window pane. After half an hour, maybe more, I had exposed a couple hundred frames. There was nothing more I could think of to do. I was starting to get bored. Whatever anxiety I had felt in the compartment, it had faded. Now my concern was my camera again. I didn't want to drain the battery. I wouldn't be able to recharge it until I got to my hotel, and I like to leave room on the memory card, too. So I returned to the cabin. It does not always come, Claudio said. Maybe tonight it sleeps. I nodded. I wished I could sleep. But now I knew I wouldn't, no matter what. Claudio offered me the wine bottle again, but I waved it off. "'It is like a great white bird,' he said. "'What is?' Then I realized. "'Oh.' But instead of wings like a bird, it has long, bony arms with flags attached. It trails flowing ribbons of ghostly light, like ragged banners. And it runs alongside the train on high, bony legs, like stilts. It takes great long steps, so it looks like it runs slowly alongside.' and as it passes it arches its head low to peer into the windows of the train, one after the other, as if it is looking for just the right one. It has a stabbing beak, Signora, all stretched out in front with many teeth, and dark hollows instead of eyes, like a great white skull. It floats through the night as if the train is motionless, and it is the only thing moving, and it screeches like the wheels of the carriage as the train goes around a curve. "'You saw all this?' See, si, Signori, and worse. I saw it stab into the train and pull the poor man out, right through the side as if it weren't there. The man struggled and cried, but the mostro just tilted its head back, snapped and gulped, and he was gone. Claudio's face was pale. It could have been me, mio dio.' He put his face into his hands, sobbing. "'That poor man. It is my fault. I thought we were safe. We talked all night. We talked for hours. I told him we were safe. I was wrong. May God forgive me.' He wept uncontrollably for a long time. I didn't know if it was fear, or grief, or some anguished mixture of both. Whatever horrors were churning in this man, they had been seething for a long time, and to be honest I found it disconcerting. I am not the kind of person who hugs others with the comforting reassurance of they're there. It'll be all right, because the evidence of the universe is that it is not going to be all right. It is only going to get worse. The best you can do is endure it. So I let him weep without interfering. Whatever he'd seen, whatever had happened, it was his personal nightmare. There was nothing I could say or do that would alleviate his pain. The most I could do was sit and be with him, so that he would know he was not alone. That's usually enough. It should be enough, for most people, anyway. But even after he stopped weeping he stayed with his head in his hands for the longest time, as if he was afraid to look up at me, as if he did not know what to do next, as if he were fighting within himself. I sat and waited. My camera was still in my hands. I made a show of fiddling with it, reviewing all of the frames in black, something to do so he would not think I was sitting and judging him. At last Claudio looked up, all red-faced and puppy-eyed. Signora, forgive me. You don't have to apologize. There's nothing to forgive. He shook his head. No, no, I have taken advantage of your good nature. I have imposed myself on you. You did not invite me to intrude, but I have invaded your privacy, and I have let my terror overwhelm me. I have demanded too much of you. I shook my head. It's all right, Claudio. The way I see it, if human beings cannot be there for each other, then we are the real monsters. I chose my next words carefully. All you have been through, it must have taken real strength for you to ride this train night after night, week after week. He nodded. He pulled out a dirty red handkerchief and wiped his forehead, his mouth, his nose. See, see, sometimes it does get to me. He looked across the tiny compartment. Both of us were swaying with the rocking motion of the carriage. You are a kind man. At first I thought you would be like all the others, most people. I tell them what I have seen. They do not want to hear. They tell me to leave them alone, to let them sleep. They tell me I am crazy. But, Signore, you did me a kindness. You listened to my story. I am sorry for scaring you so badly. I'm not, I started to say, and then realized it would have been a lie. It's a very disturbing story, yes. He sighed, he sagged, the air came out of him like a deflating balloon, and he looked around as if seeing the cabin for the first time. "'I think it is safe now,' he said. "'If you want to sleep, I will stop talking.' "'Yes, I am getting tired,' I admitted. Claudio helped me pull the back of the seat down to make a bunk, and I climbed into it gratefully. The train rattled and bumped, rocking me fitfully. I assumed we were somewhere in the middle of France by now. I dozed uncomfortably, never fully asleep, never really awake either but I must have slept some, because I awakened to see bright sunlight streaming in through the window of the train. I rolled on to my side to see if Claudio was awake, but he was gone. I was alone in the compartment. For some reason I was not alarmed. Perhaps I should have been, but maybe he had gone to the service car. I made my way to the laboratory at the end of the car and emptied my bladder, returned to the compartment, pushed the seat back into place, and settled myself to wait for our arrival at Gare de Lyon. According to my watch, we were still forty minutes out. I powered up the camera and began working my way through several hundred blank exposures, examining and deleting each one in turn. Most of them were blank. The ones that had been taken with the flash were a blur of overexposed glare. Except for one, aimed out through the window. There was nothing visible beyond the glass, but the pane showed a dark reflection of me peering through the viewfinder of my camera, and something darker looming behind me that should have been Claudio, but wasn't.
2: wasn't. Ah, the efficacy of final lines, in this case, just two words. Thank you for letting us hear that, David. David Gerald says, I've only written two stories that I consider horror. One is Chester, the other is Night Train to Paris. To me, he says, a horror story is about something unknown And possibly unknowable, because as soon as you know it and understand it, it's not horrific anymore. David says, I don't think in horror terms, so if and when I write a horror story, it's a happy accident, because I really do appreciate that cold chill that creeps up the spine when confronted with the inexplicable. I think he got it with the last line of Night Train to Paris. Night Train to Paris first appeared in the January-February 2013 issue of the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. And thank you, Brian Esterson, for reading Night Train to Paris. Further back than he likes to remember, Brian Esterson was born in Los Angeles County General Hospital, which makes him, he says, that rarest of all creatures, a native Californian. He spent his childhood shuttling between Southern California and Phoenix, Arizona, at the whim of parents. After a short stint in the Navy, he moved to what he calls the right end of California, San Jose. Eventually, he moved back to Arizona, where he resides to this day. Preferring a good story well told, he says he eschews literary fiction in favor of genre writing, mainly speculative fiction and police
3: procedurals.
2: (sighs) Well, there we are. Every year at this time when we conclude our final Stoker-nominated story, I feel like kicking back, hoisting my slippered feet and warming them at the fire, lifting a glass and breathing a sigh. We did it again. We did it again. We've concluded the annual presentation of the Short Fiction nominees in the year's Bram Stoker Awards. Tomorrow evening, that will be Saturday, May 10th, the ceremony will take place in Portland, Oregon, as the sort of climax to World Horror Convention 2014. Wish I could be there. I cannot, alas. All the best to all of those Honored in this year's lists. And again, thank you, you six authors who allowed us access to your stories here in the Nook. Best wishes, David Gerald, John Palisano, Michael Bailey, Lisa Minetti, Michael Reeves, and Patrick freiwald And now, it is time to be up and doing, bright and chipper. It's late, it's dark, quiet, The cubs are out of town. So who or what is left to wander the streets? It's you. And those other things. A few people. Some animals, we've talked about them. Rabbits, squirrels, coyote, rats, the usual city critters. But you never can tell. Sometimes a critter can look and act one way, while being watched, yet behave somehow utterly different when your back is turned and the lights are dim. Just think about it, alone and on your way. It's a big city, and there are many, many people out there. It can be easy to lose track of a few of them. Well, wow. that should inspire your walk alone, and should bring you pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the...
1: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. For full, important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
2: Listen up! I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey-shaped like bears can
3: be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs!
2: Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in in a few minutes. Instacart for the win. Finest Genre Fiction You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com